Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, the scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this moment of reflection, this moment of slowing down, simply breathing and being present to the moment, because we spend so much of our lives either living in the past, regretting the past, or fearing the future, but the one place it's so hard to be is right here and right now. And this is exactly where you are. We approach this moment from all sorts of different experiences and perspectives, some of us hopeful, joyful, connected, anticipating what you might say or do in our lives. Others of us fearful or angry, depressed or addicted. We come to this moment believing and unbelieving, questioning and cynical. Most of us a combination of all sorts of these different attributes. But help us to see, however we find ourselves right now, that you see us and you know us in all our complexities and contradictions, in all the ways we get it, in all the ways we don't get it. And your response is not to say, yuck, and run away. Your response is not to crush and condemn. Your response is not just to watch and observe from far off. Your response to the beauty and brokenness of our lives in this world is to move toward us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would convince us of both your truth and your love, your power and your grace, your presence and the mission that you call us to join in, to renew all things. And so come now and teach us, we pray. For our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
Well, for us, you know, February 13th is actually a big day in the Nault family, at least for Florence and me. It was 18 years ago from yesterday that I first met Florence. And in fact, it was one year after that that I had asked her to marry me. So I just try to line things up, make it easy to remember. You know, that's all of my foreplanning. Uh, 18 years ago from yesterday, my little sister Sarah had already become friends with Florence because Florence was her camp counselor. And Sarah was bothering Florence to come and meet her big brother. She said, you're going to really like him. She said the same thing to me. She kept this up for the better part of a year until finally she said, look, my brother is giving a talk at the University of San Diego. There will be a lot of people in the audience. If you just come meet him, I'll leave you alone for the rest of my life about meeting my brother. And Florence said, if you will leave me alone, I will come and meet this man that is your brother. So she came out on a rainy and stormy night, February 13, 2003, and we met right there. I could take you back to the same room, the lecture hall where we met. I could show you where she was sitting. I don't remember anything about what I said or anybody else that was there except for where Florence was. And so on these, uh, you know, on these kind of anniversaries of meeting since we've moved back to San Diego a few years ago, we've actually been able to go to the lecture hall at the time that we met. We know when we met because it was right before this event that started at 7.30. We stand on the spot we met, we take a selfie, and then we go and we get dinner at the restaurant on campus there at the Grand Terraza. And then we tell our stories to our kids and they all kind of like look at their shoes or look at the ceiling or look at their watch or whatever they want to do. Um, But we, we want to bring out these stories. I mean, on one hand, we bring out the stories because I'm a hopeless romantic and I just can't help it. But at the same time, Florence is nodding. Thank you for that. Uh, but we also bring out the stories because these are the important stories in our family, right? If that event didn't happen, then all of these other events didn't happen with all of our kids. And so they are these integral parts of our family story. We bring them out at least once a year to remind us of who we are and where we've been and where we're going. Now, the story we just heard is often called the story of Jesus' transfiguration. The story is told in Mark chapter 9, it's told in Luke chapter 9 and elsewhere. And we bring out this story at least once a year and often twice a year. We bring it out at the Feast of Transfiguration toward the end of the summer, and we usually bring it out right about now because we're turning the page from the season of Epiphany where we remember that Jesus reveals who God is, and we're turning the page toward Lent and then eventually Good Friday and Easter when we remember that God sees the pain and brokenness of this world and has done something about it, right? And in the middle of that, you have this story, this very odd story where Jesus climbs up a tall mountain with his best friends and is transfigured before them. That word transfigured, trans means change, figure means appearance. His appearance was changed, right? He wasn't transformed, but his appearance was changed, not to reveal something that he wasn't, not like he was putting on a costume, But in the transfiguration of Jesus, we actually see who he truly is. We get a glimpse of his glory. It's almost like the shadow side, the fallenness of this creation that had come around him had just gotten broken through a little bit, and you get a glimpse of him where they have no words really to describe what it was like to be around Jesus in this state, right? His clothes seem to be dazzling white like nobody on earth can bleach, right? This is the gospel writer grasping for words to talk about what must have appeared to be light emanating from the person of Jesus Christ on that mountain as he's revealing who he truly is. And here's the point. To see him transfigured is the key to you being transformed. To see who Jesus truly is 
has the dynamite power to actually transform your life and mine. That was the story for his first friends. That was the story for the early church. That's the story for Christians who follow Jesus from every ethnicity and culture and language around the world ever since. And so the context of this passage is that we're actually at a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point, Mark has been trying to give us a glimpse into the question, who is Jesus? And he's setting us up to see that Jesus is the true king of the coming kingdom of God. So as we've been talking over the past several weeks about what the kingdom of God looks like, I realize many of you start to think about systemic justice and things being made right. People that are hungry actually having enough to eat. People who are lonely being known and knowing other people and not having to go through this world alone. People with a sense of, do I have any sort of meaning in my life? Is my life going anywhere? Actually finding a sense of meaning that says God knows my name and knows my days and calls me to a purpose, right? this multidimensional view of the coming kingdom of God. And many of you are beginning to say, I actually like the kingdom of God, and I'm just starting to get to know the king. And now, in chapter 9, Mark turned, the gospel writer Mark turns the corner and says, so we've established that he's the king of the coming kingdom of God. Now what has he come to do? And the surprise is, This king has not come to grasp power and authority and use people for himself. He's come to give up his life by dying on a cross for the brokenness of this whole world. And then surprise upon surprise, he's not only come to die for this world, but he's come to rise again to show us that death and brokenness and sorrow and sin will not have the last word on this creation. But new creation does. And friends, when you allow that to actually get into your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your imagination, when you begin to allow that operating system to drive your actions, the world is transformed, and you're transformed in the process. So let's just look, in the brief time we have, at this moment of transfiguration. Who do we see? What do we hear? And what should we do about it? Okay, first, who do we see? You know, you not only see Jesus and his best friends, first of all, Jesus reveals who God is and he has best friends. How great is that? A God who is in relationship and actually likes hanging out with his friends. But they're not alone. At this really great, mysterious, powerful moment, all of a sudden it says Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Moses was the figure from the 14th century, the bringer of the law, the one who brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land and wandered with them for 40 years and delivered the Ten Commandments. Four of them about right ways of relating with God, six of them about right ways of relating in community, saying this is the way not only out of slavery in the empire of Egypt, but this is a way to live freely in your life here in the promised land. Now, the only problem with that was that they were called to right worship and right relationship and to live lives of justice and joy and generosity. And yet, as you read the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament, they had a very shaky track record of actually living that out. They had this vision of shalom, of God's justice and generosity, but they ended up using others. They ended up taking anything they could, whether it was military might or financial security, 
or just putting their own ethnicity above others and creating a system of who is inside and who is outside so that the insiders could have more access. They would take anything they could to lift themselves up, often at the expense of others. So Moses' job was to deliver the law and to bring them into freedom, and yet there's this sense that it was always incomplete. And that's where Elijah comes in. Elijah was from the 8th century, one of the greatest of the prophets. And so the prophet's job was as Israel was going off the rails and forgetting their original calling to love God and love one another as they love themselves. The prophets would come and call the people back to their original identity. To actually critique the nation where it had gone wrong and call it back to the vision of God's shalom, peace, flourishing. Now, this is unique. I want to point out, whether for back then, 3,000 years ago, or for today, it is very unique for a country or a nation or an empire to have national self-criticism. National self-criticism is not the norm. Oftentimes, a nation or a country or an empire will identify its prophets, whoever they might be, and it uses them for propaganda to advance the empire, to baptize the empire's desires or wishes or policies, and to say, we can do no wrong. But I want you to see that the way God set up, God's called people, was that there would always be an internal mechanism where God's prophets can ring the bell and say, come back to your original calling. So to be a Christian means to be part of God's people, that we are open to self-reflection, that we are open to correction from the rest of the community, that we often say, how am I lining up with God's kingdom and how have I come off the rails? Now, some of you are watching and saying, well, you Christians are not doing a very good job of that. And I, and I hear you and I see you and that's part of our job as a church to do better. One of the fancy words for trying to do better is repent, to turn to be transformed, to be renewed, to be redirected and realigned, to listen to the prophets. The prophets called for repentance, to call people back to proper worship and justice. And Jesus came and said, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. I've come not to erase what Moses and Elijah did, but they were the fingers pointing to me. The law was just holding on to you. It was babysitting you. It was giving you the house rules until the great parent actually showed up and could feed you and take care of you. The prophets were the ones calling you back, but now I'm here in the flesh. I've come to create a society that's reunited with God, that treats others with justice and mercy and forgiveness and centered around Christ. So, Ironically, on that great mountain, Moses and Elijah find the one that they had actually pointed to. Moses had brought the people out of slavery into freedom. But he's pointing to Jesus, the true Moses, who will lead us out of a deeper, more sinister slavery to sin and death into a freedom of new life and resurrection and hope and joy. Elijah, the great one who called the people to repent, to turn around, to realign themselves to God, is just a pointer sign to Jesus, who is God in the flesh coming now, saying, this is not about what you can do to return to me. This is about me running toward you right now. 
that Mount of Transfiguration, where maybe what we would call the project of the renewal of all things was actually being handed over to Jesus, the true king, the true law, the true Moses, the true Elijah. Brian Zond, theologian and pastor, wrote, Jesus is the true and living word of God. Jesus is what the law and prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say but could never fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all that he wanted to say in the form of a book, so he said it in the form of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. The law and the prophets were the lesser lights in the pre-Christ night sky. They were the moon and the stars. Israel could grope forward by their soft light. The Hebrews could navigate through the pagan night by constellations. In a world of Stygian darkness, the moonlight and starlight emanating from the Torah and the prophets, it made all the difference. But with Christ, morning has broken. The new day has dawned. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in its rays. Now the moon and the stars, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are eclipsed by the full glory of God in Christ. So what do we see? We see the one that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament and the Torah, all pointed to on the scene. Now, what do we hear? Well, first what we hear is Peter saying, Lord, it's really good that we're here. Let's make three tents. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's make three booths. Let's make three places for us to camp out. And then I love that Mark gives us a little aside that tells us his motivation. He said this because they were terrified. Have you ever just not known what to say, so you say the first thing that comes out of your mind, and you think, that was the dumbest thing I've ever said? I wonder if Peter was thinking that right afterwards. Because his first impulse is just do something. Just say something. Build three dwellings. But here's where I think, upon 2,000 years of the churches reflecting on that statement, here's where I think he was really missing the point. I wonder if he was saying, Jesus, I've traveled with you. I've heard you speak. I've heard you teach. I've seen you heal people. I've seen you work miracles. I now get it. You are equal to Moses, the great pillar of the faith that led our people out of slavery. Jesus, you are as good of a teacher as Elijah, one of the best prophets this world has ever seen. And I wonder if Peter's making a mistake that we are often tempted to make. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a great healer. Jesus is one of many amazing prophets that God has given. And the the mistake there is to treat him as one of many other equals that are like him in his glory. And it's in that moment that Peter is actually interrupted by the voice that comes from the cloud. Now this whole imagery of being on a mountain with the cloud coming and the voice has been heard and seen by previous audiences. This is the scene and the setting when God came to speak to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now they're not going up to get the law to bring it down. What does the voice say? This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
Peter is saying Jesus is one of many great teachers. And the Father comes himself in the cloud and says, Jesus is absolutely unique upon all of history and upon the entire face of the earth. He uniquely is the Son of God. Listen to him. Later on, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3 writes, Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And here's the point. If the transfiguration is true, then what it does is it destroys the middle ground that most of us want to live in. It destroys the middle ground of how you treat Jesus, saying, yeah, I'm going to kind of give him a polite nod and a little bit of respect and say that he's a good teacher and the world would be better if we just kind of followed his teachings. But it erases that entire middle ground. It either says, crown him as a king or kill him as a liar or as a madman. But the only thing that doesn't make sense is to have this middle ground where we just kind of broadly accept and respect from a distance. N.T. Wright, world-renowned theologian and scholar, wrote, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham. Nonsense. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Friends, maybe this season is the season to say, I'm not going to settle with just a distant complacency or kind of a shallow agreement, but I'm going to deepen in my faith. I'm going to deepen. Maybe it means I'm going to, you're going to use your mind more. You know, when Jesus is asked what's the most important thing, he says, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe instead of saying, you know, I doubt these things, I'm cynical, I'm skeptical, you're going to say, here are my specific questions about Christianity. You're going to write them down and do some studying and good conversation around these things. I would love to have those conversations with you. Many of you, uh, for many of you, Renew Church is a community where you found this to be a safe and respectful place for you to come back to a church community after a season away. And this is a time of you building trust with the community. Because the truth, the, the myth of our society is you find yourself by going off to the mountains and being all alone. But the reality is you find yourself in the midst of a healthy community. And so whatever that looks like, to actually dive in more deeply to your questions, to doubt your doubts, to walk with trusted friends as you consider and continue to deepen your questions. You know what else it means? It means if he truly is the unique son of God, the one who has God's stamp of approval and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It means the only response that makes sense is to center our lives and our worship on him. Now, look, I know that as I say that, we have all sorts of reasons not to want to do that. Let's just admit it. The idea of following Jesus is terrifying because it means that you and I lose control of our lives. Here's what, I'll, here's what I can tell you. You will never hand control of your life over to Jesus until you can see how trustworthy and loving he is toward you. 
If you think he's going to crush you or condemn you or fail you, then you never would. Why would you? But as soon as you see how much he loves you, why would you wait even another second to give your life to him? You know what else it means? It means that as the beloved one with unique access to God the Father, he actually uses that access to move toward you and to unite you with God. I mean, access is a really important thing, especially when it's combined with relationship. Access and relationship. I experienced this yesterday in, in sort of a comical way. I mentioned to you that yesterday we had met, uh, met each other 18 years ago. Usually that means it's pretty easy to get a reservation at a nice restaurant because it's the day before Valentine's Day. So Florence and I always just kind of laugh at, you know, we got an easy um, reservation and we didn't have to use the Valentine's Day menu, which is just code for we're going to mark up our regular food four times. And so usually we're laughing because we get in there so easily. Except this year, the 13th came on a Saturday, especially as things are easing up around COVID and dining outside and all of that, which just means you could not get a reservation at any restaurant that we really wanted to go to. I mean, I was down deep. I'm texting friends. I'm on the, the B list and the C list. And then I remembered there's a restaurant on the harbor. I just, for whatever reason, hadn't come to me. And I thought, it's a long shot, but I'm going to try it. So I call and I say, the person says, hey, this is, you know, this is so-and-so restaurant and this is so-and-so. And I said, oh, this is Matt Nault. We actually went to grade school together. And it turns out that the person on the phone not only works at the restaurant, that's a little bit of access, his family owns the restaurant. And so I, I, we went from no reservation at all with nowhere to go to a beautiful table outside on the harbor at sunset. Not because we were wealthy enough to pay for it, not because we were famous enough, because you know, people think that we deserve it, because of access and relationship. Now, that is a dim picture, just a glimpse of Jesus saying, the meaning that you're looking for in your life, the connection that you desire, all that striving and worrying and achieving and pretending, might it be because you're actually looking for love and welcome, that you're striving for some sort of deeper meaning in your life. And I actually move toward you with that kind of access to the God who knows you and loves you and created you and calls you. God says, I give you my son, my beloved. So that's what we hear. This invitation, this, this declaration that says not only is he unique among all who have ever come as Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, but in that calling, he comes to you as the beloved and says, and don't forget, you are beloved as well. You are closer to God than the next breath that you breathe. Not because you've achieved it, but because he moves toward you. So what should we do with this information? How do we respond and here's the simple truth. This is good news for everybody. On one hand, like I said, this means you can say, I can entrust my will to God who is full of grace and truth. You will never, nor should you give your life to God until you see how good he is. But once you do see that, why would you wait another second? It also means that Jesus does not just desire your wholeness and renewal of the world, but he actually does something to bring it about. 
Jesus not only taught about the kingdom of God with new authority and lived as the true king, but he did something to bring forth the kingdom of God once and for all. In Luke's version of this passage, he notes that not only were Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, Luke actually tells us what they were talking about. It says Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus his exodus. See, that recalls Moses leading his people from slavery into freedom, from economic poverty and political slavery to the promised land in the exodus. And Jesus will lead you and me into a truer and deeper exodus, not only from poverty or political injustice, but from the slavery to sin and death itself. Every power and oppression and pain and sin itself, what we have done and what, we have, what has been done to us is dealt with in his new exodus. You see this most poignantly on the cross where Jesus is absorbing the violence of the world. And instead of calling down wrath or vengeance, he speaks words of pardon and peace and mercy and forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Recycling the vengeance and the pain of this world into peace. And what are we to do? Take up our cross and follow him. You know what this means? This means that you and I can face the disappointments, the sorrows, and the fears of this world right now. Christians are not those who run from our fears or who just kind of self-medicate or minimize or over-spiritualize everything and say, there, there, it's all going to be okay someday. To be a Christian means to be grounded in the reality of this world as it is. To be able to face pain and sorrow and disappointment with hope. It means we look for beauty all around us. Friends, where do you see beauty in your life? Where do you see beauty in this neighborhood or in this world? Don't just pass it by. Notice it. Give voice to it. Display it. Fuel it. Amplify it. Share it. Because as we do, we are sharing the marks of the coming kingdom of God. And finally, it also means that you move toward the pain points of this neighborhood, of this city, of this world. As we mentioned last week, when the early church would undergo times of famine or plague, they would simply ask three questions. Who's the most impacted by this? How can we help? And who should we send? What are the pain points on your street? What would it look like for you to reach out today and say, my name's so-and-so, I just want you to know I see you. Is there anything I could do to be part of part of good news in your life? Is there anything I could do to help? See, we do that in thousands of ways organically. And as we do, we're living into the transfiguration, but we're actually living out our transformation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that just as you surprised those first friends of yours on that day, on that mountain, that you would break through in a way that only you can today and reveal yourself as you are full of grace and truth, full of beauty and power. Imbue us with that beauty and power today. Truly inspire us by the power of your Holy Spirit and send us out 
to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.